0: Dr. Lisa Allen serves as the Chief Patient Experience Officer for Johns Hopkins Medicine. We discuss how strategies applied at Hopkins can be brought to smaller practices and how larger practices can give the boutique feel of smaller practices. The theme that kept coming up was that it's all about making the patients feel welcome, from training staff to your own demeanor as a physician to the aesthetic of the office. We also discuss complaints versus formal grievances and how each is addressed and we end on changes made during the pandemic and what she expects to stay. Before joining Hopkins, Dr. Allen was the System Vice President for Quality Patient Experience and Patient Safety with Steward Healthcare System, an 11-hospital community-based accountable care organization serving more than 1 million patients annually in 85 communities throughout Massachusetts. In this position, she successfully introduced patient-centered care, including best practices to improve hospital consumer assessment of healthcare providers and systems scores, HCAPs. Known for her collaborative leadership style, Dr. Allen served as the Associate Vice President for Quality, Patient Safety, and Experience at UMass Memorial Healthcare, the largest provider of health services for Central and Western Massachusetts. She also led patient safety and quality efforts for 20 years as the Director of Quality Management and Outcomes Measurement at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. Dr. Allen earned her Ph.D. and M.A. in medical anthropology and community medicine from the University of Connecticut. She holds a bachelor's degree in cultural anthropology from San Diego State University.
1: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and do not
0: represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael L. Relvis is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians. We know he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash MRinsurance or contact him at 800-817-4522. That's 800-817-4522. Dr. Lisa Allen, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
1: Dr. Block, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, Brad, please.
1: Okay, Brad, thank you.
0: One of the complaints that I get from my patients is that they feel like the practice is sometimes too institutional, right? With my practice, we take on smaller practices that want to join us for a number of reasons, but they're used to seeing the doctor and the office manager and the front desk, and maybe it's the film your faces. I'm not quite sure what it is, but they say, I really yearn for the mom and pop feel of the smaller practice. So coming from a huge institution like Johns Hopkins, how can we make these practices feel smaller even as they continue to grow?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question that you ask. I have mostly worked in academic medical centers for my career. Although I'll tell you that when I had my kids, I went to a mom and pop kind of a practice and everybody knew me and they knew the kids and they watched them grow up. It's interesting. I don't expect that as much anymore, but I imagine that there are people who still really do expect that. And so I think No matter who's at the front desk, it's how they welcome people in. If you go to a hotel and somebody says, hi, Dr. Block, we've been waiting for you. Hope you had a good flight. It's a welcoming type of a thing. And I think often in healthcare, we're afraid because of HIPAA or whatever, to use people's names or to welcome, or you don't want to just say insurance card, please. That's just not the way (laughs) to welcome people. And I've seen that with their head down insurance. So I really do think it's that same kind of welcoming, looking up, looking somebody in the, Face, knowing who's expected there, confirming their identity before you get into the insurance. And we at Hopkins have a caring communication model that we can certainly talk about a little bit later that we built, and it's called Connect, Partner, and Reflect. It's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it doesn't matter how short the conversation is or how long it is, how clinical it is, or whether it's somebody just cleaning a room. Everybody really wants that connection, that beginning, that middle and the end. So I think front desk people need to do that. We need to make sure people know what our service standards
0: are. Got it. Yeah. It's adding a personal touch. So there are ways to add touches here and there that can mask the institutional feel. Absolutely. Well, kind of on the other side of that, are there some strategies that have been applied at Johns Hopkins, that can be applied at smaller practice, right? Like there are still some smaller practices out there. They do exist. Right. So there's certain things that only work on a larger scale, but are there any tips that you would give to smaller practices that things you've learned aside from what you just said, right? Like that even something as simple as the welcome strategy or the welcome script.
1: Yeah. I think it's really important to invite people to have a seat. If things are running behind, to be open and honest about it, to offer, Water or a coffee or something. I think that there are things that make you feel welcome. And you see this all over. And I don't like to liken healthcare situations necessarily to a lot of other industries, but I think it's true. You know, when you go get your car fixed, the places that welcome you and have you sit in an area and make it comfortable for you. You want to go back there versus places that have 10 year old magazines and the smell of whatever. I do think, what does the environment look like? Have we made it comforting for them? Have we put in chargers for people in case they do have a little bit longer wait or they forgot their chargers so that they have the opportunity to charge while they're there? Have we given them interesting things? To look at in the room? Have we made used comforting kinds of colors in that? I think a lot of that makes a difference. How comfortable does the place look? TVs? You know, so interesting thing about TVs. I have mixed feelings about TVs because there are people who want quiet and people who want to have TVs. Obviously, if the room is big enough, I love places that have quiet spot and then a TV spot. But I would say, with most people having their own forms of entertainment on them, I would pass on the TVs.
0: What about TVs that just show branding right on cycle as the patient's waiting there on 10 minute cycles, just hearing about your practice over and over?
1: Yeah. So I think if you don't have any more than a 10 minute wait, it's probably okay. <laughs> We've used televisions for education in our emergency departments. This is what you can expect when you come to an emergency department. This is why things may take some time. I think people just end up blocking it out. I'll tell you a funny experience with a television. I was in a orthopedics waiting room and there was a big poster that said, you know, for every extra Five pounds of weight that you have, it adds X amount of pressure onto your knee. Find out about the benefits of having a healthy lifestyle, losing weight. On the television was, and I don't even know who it was, some very overweight cooking show. (laughs) <laughs> throwing butter in and frying things up. And I thought, what is wrong with this picture? I do think calming music is nice. We've done that in some waiting rooms, having a calm station on, having information around, if you're in a diabetic clinic, having information about diabetes or having profiles of physicians, those kinds of things are okay.
0: Personally, I've found that the only channel that really flies is HGTV. Because we see kids and adults. So even if you put on something like the Discovery Channel, you'll have sharks eating animals fighting other animals that'll scare some of the smaller kids. So the only thing that's really universally accepted and sometimes even sublime at the same time is HGTV. That's just my own personal spin.
1: Yeah. And we have done things in a radiology waiting room where we have the channel that's just got beautiful scenes and calming music and it yeah. just sets a tone. So, yeah, you really have to be
0: careful. You mentioned connect, partner, reflect. So that's the strategy for the entire interaction, right? Even for physician encounters, correct?
1: That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, we started this when I worked with Dr. Peter Pronovost, who was at Johns Hopkins. We really started asking, what's a good way to look at communication? And We had done a lot of research, we were working with people who were experts in patient physician communication. We really wanted to find something that was easy to remember and really got to the heart of good communication. And Dr. Provost is known for his checklist. And so we started a whole checklist of different behaviors. We worked with educational designers and they said, less is more, keep it simple. And then we went to our patient and family advisory council. and We said, here are all these behaviors. This is what we're thinking about as far as how we group things. And that's how we came up with Connect. People want to have that acknowledgement, that friendly greeting. The recognition of who you are and what the plans are. And then partnering is really having that patient engagement piece, listening showing compassion, coming up with a plan. And then reflection is really either that teach back or just confirming what the next steps are and making sure everybody is on the same page. So we really started it with physicians and we did it. What does it look like in a clinical practice? What does it look like if you're rounding? What does it look like when you're actually talking peer to peer or physician to nurse? How do you connect with each other? So you recognize each other, call each other by name to create good teamwork and good relations. And then we ended up spreading it out. We taught it to nursing. We taught it to our environmental services staff. We taught it to our front desk staff in outpatient clinics.
0: So if you're having training like that Mm -hmm. for say the physicians, is that just during onboarding where you do that type of training or is this something that veterans go through as well? It's
1: everybody really. We do new employee orientation, which some physicians are in, but most are not in. We have broken it down so that What we like to do is in a faculty meeting, we'll teach it in 15 minutes to introduce it to everybody who's in the faculty meeting. And then we'll come back in 15 minute segments, sometimes 10 minute segments with some examples of what a really good connection looked like. And we might use patient comments or patient stories or patient letters to show how that worked well. And then we might dissect a really difficult connection and we do it with each phase. And so it's not don't take hours of people's time. We know we don't have hours of people's time. And so we try to build it into the way that we do our work.
0: Well, it also seems like a great way to keep people's attention, right? Because in the same way that like when my kids watch Sesame Street, they're just these short clips and then another short clip and then another short clip and then maybe a slightly longer one and then a really short one. Exactly. Because they only have so much attention. Same goes for us. So that seems like a really great way to make sure that your message is being heard.
1: Right, and I think that this is happening more and more. There's a lot of different things out there for training physicians on how to have good communication there's the Institute for Healthcare Excellence that teaches pearls at our, or there's Language of Caring, which has a physician's module. We also had a patient engagement program that teaches physicians and others how to do behavioral interviewing, how to get your patients to engage in the behavior that you're hoping to see them do. So there's all these different programs out there. Some are four-hour programs, some are eight-hour programs, and some are really using the snippets of videos of what does good behavior look like? How do you deal with these different situations so that you could actually watch somebody doing it. And so I do think snippets works better when we introduce this communication concept what we said was everybody from the top of the organization all throughout need to start using this language. So we started finding comments, letters, and recognizing people for the great connection they did, the great partnership they did, how the reflection worked to help with readmissions. And so you start making it part of your shared language. And I think that's when you start changing culture.
0: So you mentioned using patient feedback. What are some of the more common complaints or praises, a little of both, that you hear Mm -hmm. from your patients, specifically about what you focus on with the patient experience?
1: Sure. So I would say in the outpatient setting, things have all changed since COVID, right? Now people basically get in on time. It's an amazing thing that we were able to fix certain things. I think about when we were doing original surveys in our telemedicine before COVID, we were getting six surveys back a month. And second month of COVID, we had 4,000 back. It's, It's amazing how long you think something is going to take and then how quickly you can change things. But, you know, I would say that part of the issues is either getting an appointment because some specialists are quite booked up. So for us, that can be a problem. Maybe getting a call back when somebody has a question can be an issue at times. And then sometimes just the coordination of care if somebody needs to go to another specialist. So thinking about how do we do a little bit better on the front end and a little bit better on the back end, I'll tell you that the majority of our praising comes in around that encounter with the physician. People feel they found the right physician. They felt listened to. They feel like they really care about them. They feel like they're going to take care and help guide them through whatever is the reason that they've come to them. And we just get fabulous things that we read about our physicians, you know, how their lot, people's lives were saved. People were suffering for years and finally they understand what's going on. So it's really fabulous. I mean, that's what gives us all brightness in our day, right? All those compliments.
0: Yeah. That's the big difference between customer experience and patient experience, right? Like I had a really nice stay is very different than, you know, you saved my life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No.
0: Everything's got a lot more gravity here.
1: It does. I really think that the power of these letters and the comments on the surveys, we want to make sure that we share that regularly because I think when people feel pretty beaten up, it's so nice to see what a difference they made in somebody's life.
0: Yeah, we don't necessarily hear that. And for me personally, when I do hear it, I don't know what to do with it. I'm just so terrible at taking a compliment. I don't know how to say just thank you. But when you read a review, Mm -hmm. it just feels different. Yeah. It helps with burnout. It really does.
1: And it's interesting because I've been doing this for a long time and people always say to me, oh, only the angry people send in their surveys. And I'm like, that is absolutely 100% not true. When I look at a survey, 85 to 90% of people are saying you always did this positive behavior we have 85, 10% are saying you usually did it. And then we have 5% that are this sometimes never. And usually it's a onesie, twosie that are the never. It's not the angry people call our patient relations department. (laughs) They don't often send surveys. And people who we get the surveys from are people who are really grateful. And I think, especially during COVID, people have realized how difficult it's been on healthcare providers. And I think they're very grateful for the, the care that they're
0: getting. Yeah. So when you do get negative feedback from a patient, whether it is online, reaction to a survey or the phone call? Who sees those complaints and then what path do you have for them? Who sees them and then how do they end up getting addressed?
1: Yeah, there's a few different things. So we define in the patient relations world, there's a request for service. Like I'm having trouble getting an appointment. Can you help me? We call the office for them, try to get it worked through that's a request for service. A complaint is something that we can resolve on the spot. I am sitting here. It's two hours past my appointment time. I'm going to now have to pay more for my parking. I'm really angry. We come over with the apology. We say, I'm really sorry that this has happened to you. Here's a parking coupon. We don't want you to have to pay for parking. That's an on the spot resolution of a complaint. A grievance is something that either has to do with clinical quality of care Or somebody calls and says they want follow-up or they send in a letter. And that's a much more formal sort of CMS defined way that we have to do it. And that is handled by, with the assistance of the patient relations department, is handled with the department where the complaint came from. So we do work with the administrator. We may work with the physician if it was a physician-related complaint or the chair of the department. I mean, we try to understand what happened. We might do medical record reviews, you know, along with the physician advisor from that team. And then a corrective action is put in place and we write an apology to the patient with some descriptions about what happened and how we're going to make things better. We learn from those. And then every quarter we go to the chair of the department with how many complaints, grievances have come in, what were the main themes and the administrators there and what are we doing about it? Now, if it's a physician-based grievance and it's a repetitive type thing, that gets handled through the medical staff office.
0: It sounds like an exhaustive process. So is that any negative review? Like I'm just picturing someone putting a Google one-star review or a Yelp (laughs) one-star review and there's this exhaustive process.
1: No, this is really just for a grievance. Okay. Yeah, this is where they wrote a letter. They had... Clinical care complaint. You know, if it's like my food was delivered cold, we'll say, I'm sorry, your food kept getting delivered cold to you. We've talked with our nutritional staff and we're working on fixing it on the unit. We do go and talk to them and we do try to figure out why does the food keep coming up cold, what's going on there? You know, we sort of define patient experience as people, process, and place. You can have good people, bad processes, things get really frustrating. Maybe you have good processes and bad people. You got to look at your training and who you're hiring, and maybe the place. Place is just not good. And you got to look at some remodeling or whatever. Yeah. So no, it's only for these really in-depth grievances. As a matter of fact, on our surveys, we say to people, if you have something that you feel you need to discuss in further detail, here's the link to patient relations. You know, Here's the phone number that you can call or you can write a letter to this address. We realize we get thousands and thousands of surveys back a month. There is no way we can physically go through every single survey. And if somebody's upset about it, get back to them. So we really put it back into the patient's hands. If this is something that you're really upset about and you want to have resolution on it, here's how you get in touch with us.
0: It's ultimately a really iterative process, right? Like everything, if it's significant enough, What Mm -hmm. can we do to improve this? And so you're constantly improving the hospital based on the feedback you're getting.
1: Absolutely. So we look at our surveys in all areas of the organization and everybody has a goal. We get annual reviews. Everybody has to write at least one patient experience goal or experience goal in their annual review, their goals for the year. And we use lean methodology. We have something called an A3, where you talk about what the problem is, you set the goal, you do some plan, do, study, act, that iterative process, Mm -hmm. and then you have a team that's working on it. So each of our inpatient units has probably about two of these A3s just around patient experience that they'll be working on with a service team. And we have that in our clinical areas too. People know where they're excelling and some of the things they need to work on. And so we usually will find one for a clinic that they need to focus on for the year. We don't like to change things a lot, I think it just gives people whiplash. It's much better to set your goals for the next year based on data from the past year and know what you need to work on to improve.
0: So you really use those surveys. That's a lot of useful data that you're getting. Okay. Absolutely. How do you get those to the patients? You get them in the mail, you get them in an email, yeah. you give them on their way out. When do they get them?
1: So most of our surveys are done through email or text at this point. Some are regulated surveys and have to be done through the mail, like our hospital HCAP survey. But even that, we do 50% of our population gets a paper survey and the other 50% gets an unofficial email survey.
0: Oh, it doesn't count if it's email.
1: It doesn't count right now if it's email. Wow. Not for HCAPs.
0: Yeah. Seems archaic.
1: They're working on it. They'll get to it in a few years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're always behind the
1: eight ball in medicine. Oh my gosh. This is government, right? This is the government.
0: <laughs> also behind the eight ball. But right. with medicine, like we've had personal computers in our homes since the mid eighties. Yeah. And so now we finally have them in our offices for the last 10 years. Right. Now it's ridiculous. I think the same thing about patient experience, right? Like hospitality has known about a lot of these concepts for decades and we're just starting to get into it now.
1: Yeah, I would say in my years of working in hospitals, and I was involved pretty early with patient experience. Being an anthropologist, I actually came into a hospital. It was fluky how I got my first job, but I knew statistics and research, and the surgery department needed some help with somebody who could do that. And so it was a six-month trial, and thus my career began in 1988. And it was interesting because I was watching things that were going on. That was back in the day when we had 15-minute visits into the ICU once an hour. And so families could go in, see their loved one for 15 minutes, and then have to go out and sit in a waiting room for 45 minutes. And it was so controlled. And I was watching these families in the waiting room and how distressed they were. And we started talking about, can't we just open it up? I mean, even if we just opened it up for two hours, but asking them to leave, is that really the right thing to do? And we started measuring these types of things. We put together a little waiting room survey, and I was there involved in a project that was starting to test the HCAP surveys. So I think it was until HCAPs really became tied to pay for performance, we never got the attention of the board of directors. Once money became involved in patient experience, that's really when the field exploded. That's when they said, we need people who understand this and how to work on this and it suddenly became a science like you know, patient safety and quality improvement using those methodologies. I'm grateful for HCAPS, even though it's a little archaic now, for tying it to the financial reimbursements. I think that's what turned things around.
0: That's how you get someone's attention. But it's always been something that you is tied to finance, right? It's tied to reimbursement. Because if you do it poorly, you're not going to have any patients. That's right. If you do it well, then you're going to be busy. So it just tied specifically to reimbursement now.
1: Right. And I think people have that hard concept. It's like that soft money that if people do have a good experience and they tell people, and we see this all the time at Johns Hopkins people coming from all over the world because they heard about a doctor who operated on a friend who then flew back to Saudi or wherever, and then they sent somebody else over. I mean, when you have a good experience and you're treated well, at a time when you're really suffering, it can make all the difference. I always think about some of the nicest letters I've received throughout my career. And they are often from people who lost a loved one in our hospital. And they say the compassion and the care that was given to my mom, my dad, my whatever during this time and how you treated the family, we will never forget how you made us feel. And it's just, it's heartwarming.
0: Yeah, I think if you have uh, an appendectomy and everything goes fine, how much of that experience are you going to commit to memory? But some of these really traumatic events with unfortunate outcomes are going to be defining moments in people's lives. The communication there and how people are treated is critical it is
1: it is and i was reading about the there's a book called compassionomics and just the studies that have shown how that compassionate interaction that empathy with a call to action associated with it how it takes really 40 seconds more at most to say i'm here with you i'm going to help you get through this let's do this together it builds such a sense of trust and i think over this past year so many places have said, I'm sorry, you can't come into the clinic appointment with your loved one. You can't visit them in the hospital. We've taken very vulnerable people and put them out there by themselves. And the only people that they have to rely on are really the healthcare team. Yeah. And yet the healthcare team has faced a lot of burnout this past year. And so how do we keep that compassion?
0: At the beginning of the interview, you talked about making it welcoming, right? That's how (laughs) we make something feel less institutional and more right, mom and pop. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know a better way to put that. Yeah. And so you talked about some of the aesthetics, right? Some of the music that you might play and you want the decor to be welcoming. How much does a staff aesthetic matter, right? Like dress codes and name tags and how much of that's changed for the pandemic? I know for us, I used to wear a shirt and tie. I've read papers that say patients prefer a white coat, but I just I abhor the white coat. So Uh I wear a shirt and tie, but now I've been wearing scrubs. I think there's more casual look to it, less likely to instill confidence. So what's your take on pre and I guess post pandemic physician and staff aesthetics, and then what you're doing currently with the pandemic?
1: Sure. It's funny. The first two places I worked for a majority of my life, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times we talked about color-coded uniforms And when I got to Johns Hopkins in 2014, I was like, oh my God, they have color-coded uniforms. This is amazing. (laughs) I'm so excited about this. And so there is a professionalism. So one of the things that we did, and it is funny, I've seen so many people on Zoom now, right, that aren't in their usual suits and me neither. I'm wearing a sweater now versus a suit, but it's interesting. I actually ended up getting hospitalized in my first year of working at Johns Hopkins. Oh, wow. I always said that I sacrificed part of my body so that I could experience the hospital. But Anyway, one of the things that I noticed, because I was there for a few days, and it was when I was leaving, somebody said to me, did you leave something in the safe? And I said, what safe? They said, oh, well, the safe behind this door. I said, well, I never even opened that door, you know? So it made me realize that we don't do much to welcome people to our organizations. And we are so used to knowing how things work that we forget other people, it's a new environment. Like you think about a bell person at a hotel might say, here's the light switch. This is how you turn up the heat. If you're in a nice hotel, they'll walk you through that. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it. We don't do that at the hospital. We just put people in the room. So we ended up creating what we called a warm welcome and a fond farewell. And I think you can do this in any setting. The warm welcome is have a glass of water, here's a place to sit the doctor will be with you soon. But in the hospital, we're much more deliberate about it. We teach people how to order their food because we have food on demand. Here's the television. Here's how you use the television. This is where the safe is. And then we give them a patient handbook. And the patient handbook has the color coded written by our patient and family advisor in collaboration with our marketing and communications. This is what a navy blue outfit means. And this is what their role is. And this is what they do. So I I do think there is real benefit to having a dress code and I think that it helps give people a sense of comfort.
0: What about the staff? Because the staff, we want to give them some independence and autonomy. So if we take away their self expression there by putting them in a uniform, because we want to empower them when they're interacting with the patients, give the staff a better experience. So it seems to me a contradiction.
1: You know, it's really interesting. I mean, our staff are very comfortable with their uniforms. We have the guest services people report up to me. They have a navy blue jacket. They can choose their own blouse. They wear khaki pants. Our clinical customer service coordinators who are the customer service people, the the inpatient units have their outfit that they wear. I think people know what they're supposed to wear to work and it takes out a lot of confusion. They can be expressive when they get out.
0: Everyone seems to appreciate that and then they're able to tell who everyone is and what their roles are.
1: So, I mean, if you want to express yourself in your clothes, You can do it outside of work. But I think in the office, we're really doing this for the patients and helping them know, especially in a complex academic medical center. It may be different in a small private practice, but in a big academic medical center, it's really nice to know this is the x ray tech who's coming in, this is the respiratory therapist, this is the physical therapist, makes it easier.
0: Are there name badges? Like, how do you handle that? Making sure they're on forward and facing and clear and making sure you're not using terminology that the patients, don't understand.
1: So we ended up going through a whole thing with our patient and family advisory councils. And I'll tell you that our clinical practices, our outpatient practices also have patient and family advisory councils. So it doesn't have to just be for a hospital. We went through a whole thing where there were probably 200 different titles out there on these little badges that your ID badge that hangs behind it. And they cleaned it up to a much smaller group of names They took it to our patient family advisory councils and said, what do you think? Does this make sense? Doesn't it make sense? And so now it's much simpler.
0: Great. Have there been any changes that you've seen or made during the pandemic that you think are going to stick around afterwards? right? Like, it's not like there's going to be an abrupt stop to the pandemic, right? It's not like suddenly one day we're going to turn around and it's over and everything's back to normal. But, you know, as we're wearing less and less PPE, for instance, Mm -hmm. like more and more of us are vaccinated, fewer and fewer people in the hospital have it. It's going to dwindle down at some point and we're going to feel more comfortable either minimally masked or unmasked. Yeah. So we'll call that the end. Are there any things that you've changed to accommodate the pandemic that you think are going to outlive the pandemic, that you're going to keep?
1: Well, I do think there are a few things. I do think that telemedicine is, especially in a hospital that's in a big urban center, a lot of people don't like to drive into the city, pay for the parking. I think a lot of people will be able to do some follow-up appointments with telemedicine. And I think that it's very convenient for people who have transportation issues, disabilities, et cetera. I think There's going to be much greater openness to think about how do we continue telemedicine. And I think that's a real advantage. Our patient and family advisory councils, we used to require everybody to come in from five to seven. We fed them dinner, had a good discussion. There are a lot of people who don't want to come in in the evening into the city. So we've been doing it virtually since the pandemic. We are going to figure out how to continue a virtual piece of it. I think that's another piece that will be helpful. I think things that I worry about is we had gotten to 24-7 visitation in the hospital, very open to engaging patients and their families in the care and the teaching and the collaboration. And we are back right now on visiting hours and restricted number of people in the hospital. I worry that is going to be hard to undo. And until people are comfortable in the waiting rooms that you don't have to be sitting six feet apart, there's a lot of reasons and everybody has to be screened coming in through the door. I worry about that. That's a huge burden on the organization. And I think it's probably at this point with very low return. I don't think we're turning a lot of people away because they're coming in with symptoms. I don't think they're saying it if they are. And I don't think there are that many walking in with symptoms right now, unless they're going into the emergency department. So I worry about us being open and welcoming in that way. And I think it's so critical for so many people to have another set of ears at appointments. And I think we have to learn how to welcome that back again without the fear of it.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Lisa Allen, Chief Patient Experience Officer for Johns Hopkins. Thank you so much for your time. A lot of useful information that really all of us can start applying in our practices. Well, thank you. And we will all try and be a lot more welcoming.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time with me. Thank you so much.
0: What a great show with Dr. Lisa Allen. But before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situation. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash MR Insurance.